Hey everyone, welcome to Rajit Show, the show where I interview people who are reshaping what it means to live well in the 21st century. We talk the creator economy, learning and building in public, and how we can hack our way out of our most pressing issues. Enjoy. All right, what's up, Praneeth? How you doing? I'm good. How are you, Rajit? Yeah, so I told you before I reached out, this podcast is the best excuse I have for talking to cool people. And our, our paths crossed a little bit at Georgia Tech, never got a chance to actually sit down and properly talk to you. So I'm glad we finally got a chance to talk about some real things. <laughs> no, I'm so excited to have this conversation as well. I'm glad it's finally happening. Yeah, for sure. So the, the first question I always ask, or, or where we always started is, it, 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 there's that day in March that we all remember, right? Every college student remembers that day in March where our lives completely changed, right? Georgia Tech sort of messed up the whole, are we staying? Are we coming back yeah, process? Yeah. But we knew that we, we weren't really coming back. It was very mm-hmm. unlikely. And our, our lives totally changed. I, I'm assuming you spent most of the last nine months indoors, right? I spent like all of the last nine months indoors at home in New Hampshire, as I mentioned. So what was just going through your head around that time? What were you thinking? Okay, so I guess, so let's like dial it back to March. So around that time, I think finals were coming up. So that was on my mind for sure. But something that I immediately started thinking about was that I have a lot of time on my hands. And I wasn't just thinking about time on my hands for that, those remaining months of that semester, but also for the fall, I was pretty sure we were going to be back. So one thing I thought a lot about was like, what am I going to do with this newfound time? Because like now I don't have to walk the classes. I don't have to go to the dining halls for like meals or anything. And I'm going to be at home. So ideally my family's going to be cooking for me and that won't be something I'll have to worry about. So what am I going to do with all that time? And then I guess another thing that was on my mind was like, as somebody that's like always been interested in like startups and stuff, something that I've always had in the back of my head uh, was that some of the greatest like companies have been built during like recessions or downtimes. Mm-hmm. And it's not like something I constantly think about, but that's just a, an idea or thought that came up in my head at that point. I was like, this is actually happening during my lifetime. This might be like the biggest time to have this happen. So I guess as somebody that's interested in startups, is it possible for me to capitalize on the opportunity by starting something on my own or joining something exciting? So those are like some thoughts that were really floating around my head. Yeah, I, I think that's a great question. I think one of the reasons it's so great to talk to you is we're very similar in this respect in that I think there's a certain amount of excitement. But yeah. it's, it's very inspiring. And so I'm just interested in what you would say got you interested in startup, but what excites you the most about starting something of your own? Okay. Okay, so here's, I guess, what got me interested in startups. So really what I was actually... I was more interested in science and technology first. That's what got me into the startups. And that started with watching Iron Man in middle school. Tony Stark was my hero. Like a lot of engineers, he was my hero. Uh, this crazy inventor who like, makes all this stuff that helps everyone. And so that's what got me into science and technology. And I was like always interested in engineering in middle school and even in high school. I like started like learning about machine learning, computer science. And something for me was like, I wanted to be an innovator, but also an entrepreneur. So we are not innovator, inventor and also an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. And what I started realizing is that those two are not always synonymous, right? Entrepreneurs are builders and inventors are people that discover things. It's like academia and industry. And yeah. what I started realizing about myself was that I enjoyed building more than I enjoyed discovering. I'd be fine with taking somebody else's discoveries and trying to apply it to like any problems that I could apply it to. And so that's really what got me into startups was like, 
what can I do to have the largest impact in the most novel ways, right? How can I help solve problems for others? And that's essentially why I got interested in startups. And then for a while, I was very, I'm not confused. I guess I was like, I had this uh, internal dilemma of whether I wanted to build with hardware or software. Uh And what actually, I guess, I realized was that you never have to choose one specific thing. You choose like the opportunity that's that's it in front of you right there. And so something that's always like, I got interested in starting to computer science with was like the software side. So I've just been like delving deep into that and seeing how that solves problems and how that can be used for startups. Yeah, that's so interesting. There's the, I I sort of want to talk more about the two internal dilemmas because I think the first one is very interesting. I started thinking about it when I started reading more Paul Graham. You mentioned industry versus sort of academia. Yeah. In industry, anyone who starts a startup, it's someone who builds something, as you said. It's someone who creates something that wasn't there before and provides value to people. It, it, it was easier for me to believe earlier in my life that they were very similar, actually, because it seems like both types of people are solving problems. But mm. it's actually, once you get deeper into it, a design, a, a startup, an idea, a product, it has to be good. People want to have to use it, right? Research in general just has to be new. It just has to be someone no one's really explored before. And the other thing, I'm interested in your take on this, Georgia Tech is uh, unique I think in most schools and that we declare our major real early. So I think we, we probably would have declared around the same time, May before we even got to school, like before mm-hmm. this is like yeah. 2019. So it's, I feel like it's very early for someone to decide. And the number of people I've heard, just thinking of com- computer science is the biggest major at our school right now, but even just the number of compies and, and double E's that do CS minors, it, it's obvious that software is eating the world. And, and I know a, a hardware startup and a software startup, there's so many different considerations. You got to figure out where you're going to keep the hardware, storage costs, maintenance costs. If it goes down, who's fixing it? Uh, you know, software just scales infinitely, obviously. Yeah. Do you think that a major in college necessarily correlates with that work? That's a tough question. But like the number of people I've heard try to like say, I'm majoring this so I can do this later. Yeah. Where it's, I don't know if that's actually how it works. You, yeah. you know what I mean? Yeah. Okay. This is something that I've also thought about a lot. I don't think your major correlates with what you end up doing. Because, and the reason why is because I take this analogy of playing instruments, right? I'm sure everybody in the world is a master at some instrument. It's just that nobody's played all the instruments in the world. It's impossible to do. Mm-hmm. And the same thing I think goes with majors. A lot of people that I see doing a specific major are doing it because it thinks they think it'll lead them to a certain place. But what if after doing that major, they don't want to be in that place anymore? Are they doomed because like they've like resigned their fate because of, to this major? I don't think so. I think there are like for me, one of the greatest techniques I think about when it comes to like mental models is looking at what other successful people have gone through and like what their paths have been and trying to pick up any lessons because and there's like a saying that greatness leaves like a trail or it, it leaves like bits and chunks that you, you can follow. And if you look at it, there's quite a few people out there that have done great things that are completely outside their field. Like um, an example I can give you is Kevin Systrom of Instagram. Kevin Systrom, I think he studied business at Stanford. He was an associate product manager, didn't really even like touch code at Google. And then he left that because it was unsatisfying. He knew he wanted to do something on his own. So he like started working on this app and that's how we learned to code. 
when he was like working on this very early version of Instagram, which was called something else. I can't remember what it was called. And then that eventually became Instagram. And I think something that's become a very prevalent notion, and I don't know if that's been said enough at Georgia Tech or just like in school in general, is that even though coding and software are very like marketable skills, not everyone needs to be an expert coder. Even entrepreneurs that want to go into tech space don't need to be like wizards, like coding wizards. They just need to know enough to be dangerous to create like their first version of the product. Mm. And so like going back to your major question, the way I started looking at it is the lifespan of, of us humans, especially us since we live in America and judging by where you're recording this from, I'm guessing like your middle class, upper middle class. Am I correct in saying that? Yeah. Yeah. Our life expectancies are, you know, let's say roughly... I'm very optimistic about this, but let's just like go with whatever has been put out there. It's around 80 plus years, right? Four years that we spent in college, I don't think will define like the rest of the 48, 58 years that we have left. That's, there's more than enough time for us to pick up other skills and become good at them. And not only that, but also compound on the, that. Like another, something that I've become very... Bullish on? Not bullish or something that's just like something that's appeared in my worldview very recently or the past couple of years, I'd say, is the power of compounding. In high school and middle school, I used to have like this thing where I wouldn't, I would, I would be very committed at doing something because I wanted to be good at it. But then I'd see like these people that were light years ahead of me. And I'd be like, there's no point because I'm not going to catch up to them. But what I understand now is that if I had started then, continued till now, I would have caught up to them by now or I'd been like at the same level at them, maybe. It's just about compounding. And so I think there's enough time for us outside of college to pick up something that we can compound upon and turn into something successful. Yeah. The first time I started really thinking about the power of compounding was I read Steph Smith and she was actually the first person I interviewed on here, which is super awesome. But she wrote this article that, that blew up. I think it had 80,000 people read it or 80,000 unique pages. It's called How to Be Great, Just Be Good Repeatably. Mm. And I, I think you would probably really like that idea. And it goes through that, that singular example of, right, take a salesman who consistently doubles their commission every month versus someone that makes a lot and, and then doesn't, yep. right? It's obvious who's going to make more money in the long term. But the thing that I took away from it is this is that greatness is a reflection on a period of your life, right? There's no one moment where you could look at someone and say that they're great. LeBron James, when you talk about LeBron James's greatness, just a a pretty obvious example. You look at 17 plus years of unbelievable, right? Basketball skill and not necessarily one unique instance in time. Although there have been some fantastic plays that come to mind. But to get back to what I was saying, that's the thing that stuck with me the most is that to being great at something, it's something that other people give you. Yep. It's not something that you got yourself and get you. And you, the, the way you get other people to give it to you is you're just dependable and disciplined over, over a period of time. Yeah, I think on that point, I wish you said Kobe because I'm a big Kobe fan. But yeah, like many of my lessons about when it comes to this approach is through like Kobe's teachings about the mom mentality, which is... Do whatever you're doing at that current moment the best you can do it and just do it repeatedly, right? Like something interesting that I've actually recently read is this book called Ikigai. I don't know if you heard of the term. Uh, Ikigai is the Japanese word for reason for 
being. Is yeah, that it? it's like basically like the purpose, right? Mm-hmm. And so in Japan, they don't have a word for retirement, and that's because they believe that everybody should find something which they can do forever. And so an example in that book that resonated a lot with me was: Have you heard of Ghibli Studios by any chance? No. So Ghibli Studios is like this really famous animation studio in Japan. And so the director of that, that like, the, like the tale about that studio is that they draw everything, like everything's done on paper. And so the director of that studio like is so focused when he draws that they'll have like tours of the studio where tourists come and whatever. And if anybody interrupts his silence, he doesn't care who, he'll just go apeshit crazy on them. And the thing I really liked about that story was that, so drawing is so purposeful to him is that, so uh, wait, drawing is so purposeful to him or meaningful to him that after a certain period of time, he said he was going to retire. So he's like, they had this whole retirement thing. And then the next day he comes back to the studio and starts drawing again. And nobody like knows what to do. Nobody knows what to say. They can't talk to him because he's drawing. And basically like, that commitment to something where you're growing old, but it still doesn't feel like work. I think finding something like that also leads to greatness, right? Because it's something where you can do every single day to the best of your ability, but it's effortless. It makes every day like more meaningful just because you're doing that one action. Yeah. I, I don't think it's necessarily effortless, but I would definitely agree with the second part that it, it, it provides a sense of meaning. And I love that you mentioned Kobe. I probably should have, because mama mentality, he obviously rest in peace, Kobe, but yeah. he, was, he was so impactful in talking about this. He said, it doesn't matter what you are, basketball player, writer. He didn't say it explicitly, but a coder, I, I think it probably applies, right? Yeah. Find something and, and get better at it every day. And it's so tough. I guess at our age, we, we probably feel like you know, we got a lot of time. But, you know, it, what, what did you think about when you were reading that in terms of thinking about what's something that I, you know, want to do every day for the rest of my life or what's something that I I want to do today and want to do tomorrow. I want to do the day after that and just keep getting better and better. Yeah. So I guess reading that actually brought back something else I've read. So there's another book called Mastery. It's by Robert Greene. Great book. Basically tells a story of all these people that have become the masters in their fields and basically traced how they were not really like special people, yet there is this like this pretty tangible process that you can trace that they followed. And the insight of that book was like whatever like whatever your thing is, you've probably already found it when you're really young. Because when you're young is like when you start discovering things and you just go out and play. And so you try a bunch of things and there is probably something that really resonated with you. But as you grew older you have these walls drawn up for you from my society or teachers, whatever it might be. So you got away from it. And so like for me personally, that thing has always been like building something. I'm like, are you, are you a CS student? Yeah, I'm a CS major as well. Okay. So like for a lot of engineers, like the first things that they used to build were the Legos. And for (laughs) me, like that was like the dream. My dad would come home some days with this huge set of Legos and just like sitting down and just like going through it, even like skipping dinner sometimes. And getting yelled at that, that was, I was like, that was, that brought me the most joy. And as I've gotten older, like I've seen that pattern again and again, the times when I started done built stuff or spent time building things, whether I only recently got into code over the past, like three or four years, but before that, just building stuff physically with my hands, that always makes me enter a certain flow state. Like I'm sure you've heard of that term. Yep. And I think that in that, in that indication that I can go into a flow state, I will when I do those things 
has like shown me that that's something that I could do that gives me a lot of meaning. And frankly, even like when I'm doing it, there's nothing really, I'd say I also enjoy playing basketball a lot. That'd probably be the only thing that can compare to how much joy I get from doing it. So I'd probably say it's building stuff, which is pretty broad, but yeah, that's my answer for that. I, I think you mentioned joy, right? Obviously one of the things too is committing yourself to something like that. That it's a constant uphill battle, right? Like building something isn't easy. I don't know how to tell you that, but it's not easy, but you're committing yourself to that journey just because of the love and the care you apply yeah. to that craft. And one of the things you mentioned, and it's an interesting distinction too. I'm, I'm wondering about your thoughts on this, right? Typically in a startup, we have the person that, that we have Wozniak and, and we have jobs or something like that. That's obviously the archetypal example, but you need someone who can build and you need someone who can sell. Or maybe those might not be necessarily the right verbs, but I, I think you sort of get the general idea of what yep. I'm trying to say. How much did you think about your idea? You've had your core thesis of what you wanted to focus on. And just in terms of thinking about your identity, I guess this is an example of the CS person and, and the business person or something like that. But just thinking about what role you wanted to play in building something, how did you navigate that argument with yourself? Yeah. Yeah. So like something, a conversation I had some time ago with a certain uncle was like, he, he had this whole thing where you go through college, you figure out what you might want to do, right? You go work for some time and then you try to figure out whether you want to do the engineering part or the business part, because those are like the, I guess the most divisible parts in a startup yeah. selling and building. And for me, like what, I concluded at the end of that conversation, which was like maybe f four years ago, was mm -hmm. that I wanted to be like, just, I just wanted to build. That's all I wanted to do. And then this past summer, I actually did a startup. I won't go get too much into the details, but the startup's still running. I just am not part of it anymore. Yeah, there was like a certain leadership dispute. And what I realized was like, I love to build product, but I also love to talk to people. Yeah. And just in general, just like me in general as a person, something I've learned a lot in college, but even though it's only been like one year, like my first year was all I had to go off on that was that I love to talk to people and like I could waste days just like talking to new people. And so that's definitely been something I've been thinking about a lot. Like what, you know, I know at some point I either want to be part of a startup or like an early stage startup where I'm like up there and actually actively building it, building the company or like starting something on my own. And so I guess I haven't really reconciled with myself, like what exactly I want to do. I know I want to build product, but am I willing to put all my time into that and sacrifice this other thing that I also enjoy doing, which is talking to users, getting feedback, learning about their problems. And I'm not completely sure. Have you had that conversation? Yeah, to jump in there a little bit, I, I think that's what probably makes you a really good engineer, right? Because, <laughs> yeah, I, I definitely have, but the I guess the cookie cutter model of an engineer is someone that doesn't know how to talk to people. Obviously talking That's to you right difficult. now. Yeah. Yeah. You like talking to people, which is phenomenal. And again, the, the idea of a startup, right? The the thing that the success of a startup is predicated on is just how well the leadership understands their users. Like the investors don't know about <laughs> the users. Your friends don't know about the users, but you know about the users, which is something obviously Michael Siebel said. And I think you were actually one of the people that set that up. But the it, it is something that I, I think about and that obviously in, in what we were just talking about, it's getting to this aspect of identity is so difficult. Picking something and being like, I'm that person yeah. was very difficult for me. I, I thought 
when I was younger, that was just a me thing. But talking to more people, it, it happens to, I think, a lot of people. It's very tough to just be like, all right, I'm Waz or I'm mm. Steve Jobs or whatever. And so I think there is this aspect of serendipity. Part of it is just keeping our ears to the ground. We're both perceptive people. You enjoy talking to people. I enjoy right certain types of conversations. I'm not necessarily like a social butterfly, but I obviously enjoy these types of conversations. Mm. And I I think opportunities present themselves. And eventually it, it does get to a point where, you know, maybe we are a part of something, but then does your role really matter? Cause, cause I think as you talked about, when you get into that building something, right. If, if I asked you to describe what you were feeling at that moment, the answer you would give me would probably just be like a bunch of BS. Cause you would just be so happy. You would really have no idea what's going on. Yeah. So I think just letting yourself enter that state and just pursuing all those ideas that come to you will naturally lead to some sort of progression where you end up being happy doing what you're doing. And the reason it's a vague answer, but I I think about what Paul Graham said about keeping your identity small, right? Letting my identity get wrapped up into something that just doesn't need to be, it is not really a recipe for success, obviously. So it's tough, right? Like it's definitely like an internal sort of struggle. Where do I fit in here? But I genuinely think it's one of those questions that doesn't need an answer. That's actually really insightful. I guess like, why does it feel like sometimes that it needs an answer? Is it because certain people expect there to be an answer for that? Yeah, I've thought about it before. I don't even know if it's like peer pressure or assumed peer pressure. You know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Yeah. You want people to know what you're doing or or you want to be able to tell other people exactly what you're doing. And then if you don't, you just get uncomfortable by that idea. (laughs) Yeah, no, because like something that I've also seen, at least recently, and this might just because be because of the startup companies that I've seen, but a lot of like CEOs now tend to are like being are technical, and but they can still like speak. Like an example that I've looked into more recently is Alexander Wong of Scale AI. Man's a genius, right? He was like tech lead at Cora when he was in high school. But if you like read and listen, I've only been able to read like the stuff that he's written and stuff. I mean, these are these are like memos that you put towards his team, so they all they've all read it. So I was like, how he communi- communicates, and then I've talked to some people that work at scale, and they all say he's one of the greatest communicators I've ever met. He's also like the super technical person. So I don't think there has to be that that divide, but I do think that people that are able to do both able to communicate and empathize with users as well as be technically equipped, those people definitely have a superpower. Yeah, for sure. Yeah, if Naval's how to get rich without getting lucky tweets or, or Sam Altman's how to be successful, yep. it's something we see. If you can build and sell, then yeah. <laughs> who's going to stop yeah, you? Sure. That's bizarre. That Have you seen like uh, Joma Tech or that YouTube channel? Yes, I have. And he got rejected. By- <laughs> so funny. Guys literally our age just rejecting like people who have graduated from college. It's yeah. so bizarre. Yeah. No, it's definitely, I do think that's that, that definition of engineers being like unsocial is slightly falling away. At least in my experience, I'm seeing less and less of that, but there's definitely going to be people that are introverts and that just want to build. But at least from uh, the people that I've met, I don't see it as much. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I I totally agree. I see people that break the mold all the time, including you, but uh, there's obviously a reason for that, right? I think there was this decision taken somewhat arbitrarily a long time ago that people who are like, don't enjoy talking to other people are probably best suited for engineering. 
And then people only hired people with those sorts of, yeah. you know, and the people that can talk to other people are like meant for business. And it just probably became a self-fulfilling prophecy. And yeah. I, I think obviously we started the conversation with this, but everyone wants to get into CS now. Yeah. And so obviously that whole thing's going to change. Actually, I actually want to thought, I want to hear your thoughts about that. Do you think everybody wants to get into CS for the right reasons? Absolutely not. <laughs> this is I, right. I, I shouldn't judge other people. I don't necessarily understand all the choices people make, but given my experience going to schools, seeing just the sorts of questions people's parents ask, hey, what major makes the most money? Yeah. What? And, and, and it's no secret, right? CS is the only field in which there are more open positions than people who graduate every year. But that doesn't take away from the fact that we end up competing with people from non-CS degrees. Creative, I know creative writing majors that are ML engineers, right? Yeah. So it's, it's people like that. There's people that do all the coding boot camps. And then it's compy and double people that end up transitioning to CS eventually. Find your passion is uh, vaporous advice, right? It's so tough to do that. It's so tough to know what you actually want to do. So I'm sympathetic to people that just pick CS and are like, okay, I'll figure it out eventually. And CS is great, right? Knowing how to build something is phenomenal. But if you're where you are right now, isn't necessarily an indication of where you're going Mm -hmm. to basically paraphrase what you said at the beginning. So I guess what I have more of a problem with is the people being like, if I do CS, then I have to do this, then I have to do that. Or I'm going to get into CS, which will guarantee that I get to do this and I get to do that. Because I think both of those assumptions are false. Yeah, no, that's definitely valid. I just wanted to hear your thoughts. No, 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 no particular like, direction or anything like that. But it's very nice to hear somebody say that. Yeah. Uh, it's so interesting because we obviously think about it. You, get, you, you pick your major real early and you're like, am I making the right decision? And... Uh, Part of it is you look to the left of you and you look to the right of you. You're like, are these like, are these the people I see myself being, right? Are these good role models for the person I want to be? Mm-hmm. But at Georgia Tech, there's thousands of people to choose from like that. So yeah, no, that's so true. I do think though, like part of it, this is a whole issue, but a lot of that, you know, decision that you make, you can be better prepared for it during high school and earlier years of like public education, just like education in general, because I've met people who've like entered high school with no idea what they want to do, but because of like how much guidance they were given during high school, like towards career prep, by the end of it, they have a pretty clear idea of what, like two or three options that they want to do or they want to go into. And so I think that access to those kind of resources widely spread throughout socioeconomic class, regardless of what your background is, will help a lot of people when they get to that point where they have to make the decision. And of course, there's still like variables that you can't control for, which make it seem, which make it like that you choose incorrectly. But yeah, I, I do believe that a lot can be done before college to help you prepare make that decision. For me, at least, I don't think that was done. I actually applied as mechanical engineering. And then during the summer before a freshman year, I switched to CS. Mm-hmm. And that was partially because for me, I was very interested in robotics. I still kind of am. But what I saw was like, I was more interested in not just the hardware part, but also the software part. And I realized in college, if I want to work on the hardware part, it would probably be like really hard to do with just an undergrad degree. I'd probably have to go get a master's again. But 
for the software part, I could pretty much easily tackle that with the CS undergrad. It gave me enough background to learn the rest on my own. But had I again give like better guidance beforehand, I think that decision would be a lot easier for me. Yeah. Yeah. I was talking to someone else about this and they said the same thing. They said, I think it is actually so hard to come by good career advice. Good career advice is very rare. And for me, one of the things that's helped is just conversations like this, right? Talking to you and you being like, I don't know if I made the right decision. And me looking from the outside, being like, okay, Praneet looks like he has it figured out. It's just interesting because it, it lets you know that it's okay to be uncertain and that's fine. But yeah, the best career advice I ever found was like 20 years old and was just on Paul Graham's website, which was like, if you're unsure about something, just build something, like just do something in that field and you'll figure it out, <laughs> which I thought was great, right? It, it seems so obvious, but I think people inherently just want that complexity of, oh, you should try all these different things. And we live in a market economy. Whatever you want, the market's going to find a way to provide it to you, but it, it doesn't have to be so complicated. And it, it comes back to the thing we were talking about before, Ikigai, right? You, you just find something that you can do every day, right? You find this uphill battle that you're willing to commit yourself to and, and you commit to it and you keep working towards it. For sure. One of the reasons we've talked about startups a little bit, one of the reasons I obviously wanted to talk to you is just to get your take on the, obviously you're a co-director of Startup Exchange, which is something we didn't mention in the beginning, but it's to just to get your take on the, the startup ecosystem at Georgia Tech as a whole, right? Sort of what in terms of student founders, I think we've talked about the, the culture of Georgia Tech is, is a very nerd-based culture. So we see a lot of very technical startups, like hard tech startups and stuff like that. So I'm just wondering what in terms of the companies people are starting. And there's also not a lot of VC funding running around on Georgia Tech. And, and so what in that aspect too? Yeah. So I'd say first, Georgia Tech is still very much like a growing startup ecosystem. I think one part of that equation is that there's been a lot of effort put on like the administrative side and just like everything that excludes founders to make it easier for founders to become founders. I don't know if that makes sense. There's been more stuff been put in to build the ecosystem. So I guess you could target that as, or label that as market pull. So there's a lot of market pull. Mm-hmm. There hasn't been enough supply to fulfill the market in terms of founders. Mm-hmm. And, but that's changing. I think that has to do more with like the corporate culture George Tech has embedded into students right from years past and that that's definitely changing now as more and more students are seeing this as another avenue and even like the administration like I, we were on a call with who runs like the accelerator at georgia tech and he said that one of georgia tech's administrative goals is explicitly to make georgia tech the top entrepreneurial school in the nation that's one of their goals and so far it's, you can clearly see it like being put into action like the createx program every single year has grown by more than a linear factor. I won't say exponentially, because I can't say it with confidence that it's exponential, but it's definitely been noticeable growth. And talking to like other schools, there hasn't been a lot of the money that they get for entrepreneurial uh, endeavors, right? For funding student founders comes from like alumni endowment, right? Not much administration. And at Georgia Tech, the number of startups they're able to found with the help of administration and very like few alumni is pretty astounding, especially mm-hmm. because for CreateX, they give $4,000 checks every single summer, I think. And last summer, I think they funded like 75 companies 
or some like really large amount of companies. Mm-hmm. And that's pretty crazy for, for a college accelerator. And so I, it's definitely growing. I think the data that we have right now is like really like very early data. Like it's uh, not, I don't think it'll be this way come five years from now. In terms of trends, so a lot of like when it comes to college startups, there is always a subset of startups where they're like, you can tell it's made by a college student. And that's because startups are created or the, the startups that problems solve or the problems that startups solve are usually problems that are faced by the people that made them, right? Or built them, or they've been exposed to those problems. Mm-hmm. And so when a college student founds a company, it's most likely going to solve some problem that the college student has been exposed to. So there's like some very common categories. There's like always food delivery. There's always something like night nightlife, which frat's the best frat to go to. And then, so there's always that subset of startups at any college. But at tech, there's also a lot of startups, like you were saying, that are more very heavy, like technical. They have a more like a research side to them. I think like a great example, there's a company called Nasolution, which is building a device to remotely administer medication that you can take through like your nose. And so there's like this hardware, very super technical side when it comes to startups. I think there are some like biology related startups as well. But a good, I'd say it's still a good proportion are software-based. And then in terms of the founding teams, I, you would think that most of them would be like CS and business would be like the majority majors that found companies, but it's pretty well spread out. Obviously CS is like a pretty good concentration, but there's also a good number of ISYU majors, which is also very interesting. And ISYU majors that are like uh, founding software-based companies which is really cool to see. And then some, another thing that I think has been interesting to see in terms of venture is that, like you said, there isn't a lot of venture capital flowing around at George Tech specifically. Like we have country capital as a student VC fund, but even they haven't, I don't think they've funded many George Tech companies. I think they just, they've only funded a couple. Yeah. And wait, what did you say? Memorial Health. That's probably yeah. Contrary's biggest success story, which came from our campus, which is cool. But yeah, go go ahead. Yeah, but outside of Contrary, there isn't too much. There hasn't been historically a lot of like early stage funds that will cater towards Georgia Tech students or just students in general or just young founders. But that's definitely changing. There's one that's formed recently. I think they came last year or maybe the year before. There's one called Outlander Ventures, which is a very early stage fund. I think they, they lead seed rounds. And there's also another one that I've found out about recently called Knoll Ventures, which is also based in Atlanta. And they've actually funded, what company did I see them fund recently? There's a company called Stackster. Is it Stackster? I think it's Stackster. It's founded by a couple, a Georgia Tech master student and then a Georgia Tech undergrad who actually went to my high school. And yeah, so there's definitely growing opportunities with funds like those that are coming in. Outlander, I think I'm, I'm more optimistic they'll fund a lot more early stage startups that come out of Georgia Tech uh, because they funded this startup and also because they, the, the, I think the founding partner, he came from San Francisco and he came from that whole early stage ecosystem where money's flowing pretty vivaciously. I wanted to use a better word, but let's just use vivaciously and yeah. easily for early yeah. stage startups. Yeah. It's an interesting point. Right? I, I think Georgia Tech is certainly very career focused. 
I've never seen more people put more pressure on themselves to get an internship at any other school than Georgia Tech, probably, to the point where I go to startup exchange events sometimes, virtual startup exchange events, and all of a sudden I'm in this gatherly room with a bunch of freshmen like, hey, do we really have to get internships? I'm like, guys, don't worry about it. It's okay. <laughs> but <laughs> Okay, so I actually talked to somebody about this. And do you know Parta Unava by any chance? No. So Parta Unava is a Georgia Tech... I don't know if he graduated or not, so I can't say he's a grad. But basically, he left Georgia Tech to go start his own company. That didn't that didn't want to go. Then didn't go in the direction he wanted to, and then he founded this company called Lasso. I've heard of them. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. They have. He's a pretty cool guy. Like he goes and works out with Cam Newton and Julio Jones, Champ Bailey, another football player. Is like funded his start his uh, company. So, That's nuts. Yeah, and so I was talking to him about this, and he's like, the reason why Georgia Tech's like that is because. It's a public university that's funded by the state's boosters and their main focus is to get talent into corporations that are based in Atlanta and grow those. Right. And so the whole curriculum is also shaped by those boosters. So that's why you have a more uh, corporate corporation focused curriculum where people are trying to go and work for somebody else, which there's nothing wrong with that. It's totally fine. Giving students the freedom within the curriculum could help a lot too, because then they see this as another avenue. And so you, you can only think like how many people that would have gone entrepreneurship are lost because they didn't know that was an option. And I right. think Creatix is doing a great job of make, exposing that. Yeah, I, I think another trend that, that I've seen, and you can obviously comment on this, but I think people go ahead and build out the product before talking to a lot of people is one thing I've obviously seen, which is, again, a, a mistake I, I've made myself. So it's it's not like I'm saying that there's anything wrong with these people necessarily, but I just think it's also an easy trap for engineers probably to fall into is to come up with something real cool and then just go ahead and build it without <laughs> seeing if people actually want it. But obviously there's contrary, right? And, and I think this whole virtual thing has helped too, right? There's a uh, dorm room fund, which is mainly concentrated in the Northeast, but even they're taking pitches from anyone now. And it's just interesting, right? I've gone to those CreateX meetings and you were probably there and Rahul Saxena goes, we want to have 300 startups a year by next summer. And you're like, oh, you know, whoa, but it'll be interesting. I think um, talking to people like Graham Gintz, right? Whom you obviously know, he's very optimistic, um, He's very bullish. It's probably a good time to use that word on Atlanta entrepreneurs. What I don't think that entrepreneurship can necessarily be taught, but what are the tools that you think Georgia Tech could do a better job giving entrepreneurs besides just money? Mm, yeah, that's a great that's a great question, and that's something that we t- try to tackle at Startup Exchange as well. So I guess like touching a little bit earlier about your point about a lot of Georgia Tech students building before the talking users. And so there's a couple of schools of thought there. There is one school of thought where you can build and then you just keep on measuring how effective what you're building is and then improve it and see if that changes anything. And I definitely go with the school of thought that you should talk to users from the beginning, but that's something else. I know there's a startup called, I don't know if there's a startup, yeah, there's a startup, VoiceFlow. Have you heard of them? So VoiceFlow builds like Alexa apps basically. And they have a platform that makes it easy to build Alexa apps. And so basically they follow that model, but no. And also I do think that the reason why a lot of them do follow that train of thought is because they're first time founders. So they don't know that like we're all in college. Most of us are probably haven't started anything before. And what I've seen at least is like that at tech, 
once students get into the the business of doing their own startup or founding something, they realize what they don't know and they're very acceptable to like feedback and they're willing to learn, which is like a great trademark, I think, of any like successful entrepreneur, especially one that comes from a te- primarily technical background. I know like at like MIT, I actually talked to somebody recently at VC and she was telling us like how at MIT, that's totally not the case. They're very much focused on technology first and they very much demarginalize the importance of the business aspects. So at least at tech, I don't see that trend, which is really promising. And then to answer the second part, which is like what tools can George Tech give? I think if you create X was created to model other entrepreneurial schools, if you ever hear Chris Klaus talk about entrepreneurship for the colleges and stuff, he'll talk about the common themes, which is they have a robust accelerator program. They have a great VC ecosystem and they have an administration that backs founders. If you like look at even Stanford's like some of their videos and, and like even stuff by like their admission council and whatever, you can, they like actually say that they talk about innovation and things like that. I think they're doing good on that part. But in terms of tools, what you can also see at these other schools is that in their curriculum, they have certain classes, which actually teach you how to build and how to think about design and how to think about mm. business or startup specifically, right? At tech, I think that's lacking especially the part about product design comes into that part about talking to users, right? There's a certain way you talk to users. There's a certain way you use that feedback. There's a certain way that you shape your product. And then when it comes to engineering, I think you can attest to this. For, for me, at least, I feel like a lot of the CS stuff we do is geared towards academia. Yeah, it's, to some extent, it's great. I think we have a really strong conceptual understanding, yep. right? Part of CS is just knowing the right words to say, to explain things to other people. But there is that hunger, I think, of just learning the knowledge to be able to build things, right? Why does CS2340 use JavaFX? No one yeah. uses that, yeah. right? Why don't we use a JavaScript framework or something like that so we can make something that we can present to people? And that's obviously a small example, but it's one of the questions I have. I think I really agree with what you said about design. Even in terms of, right, for a web app, typography, and and layout and and color theory and stuff like that. I think that's essential for any builder to know. And and if you ask most people that build things, they probably just say they tinkered around with stuff until they found the right sort of fit. But it's we're surrounded by some of the best teachers in the world, so it's not like they don't know you know what that stuff's about. No, but like even deeper than just visual design, there's like because that's like primarily visual design, but just like design Mm -hmm. in general, I think can be like because. So when I'm talking about design, I'm just talking about how do you fundamentally think about solving this problem for people? Like an example, this is not an example of a problem that's solved, but I guess just something, an example of design thinking. So like before, whenever you had a new technology product, you'd have to like take it out of the box, you charge it and then use it. And so I think you might know about this example. Yeah, yeah. Apple was the one that created this whole thing where we'll charge it for you, have it some juice. So when you open it up, you have this amazing feeling. And so there's this whole thing about the experience. How do you convey it to people? Because I'm sure there's, and there's like this thing at Georgia Tech Venture Lab, which they create, they have a lot of IP that they want to turn into like companies, but they don't know how to go about, how do we convey this super technical thing to a certain audience that needs the help? And so there's right. a whole design thing that's involved in there. And so just having a primer on some of these topics could really help for anybody, not just that wants to build, but even if they do go into the corporate world, being like innovators within there, right? 
entrepreneurs, for me at least, I don't think entrepreneurs need to necessarily go and start stuff. They can go into companies and start things there too. They can, they're just innovators. And so giving you know, those kind of people those tools, those frameworks to think about how you go about doing that, I think that's something that tech can do a lot better with. Mm-hmm. And then another thing that I actually have a bone to pick with is that one thing that Creatix is focused on a lot and their whole thesis is based around this fact or from whatever I've heard, and I might be wrong when I say this, but it seems to be around this notion that we'll create a ton of startups and just by the sheer volume, we're just increasing our chances of building unicorn companies, yeah. which I don't think is the best way to go about it. I think it'd, it'd be like the best way to go about it is seeing how can each of these companies become a unicorn company and then, you know, help those companies the most that we can. Right. Yeah. In, in fairness to them, I guess one of the things they do talk about, which we obviously just talked about is an issue is sometimes it's just customer discovery. And they really want people to think about what are people's pain points around this? What does someone actually want here? Like what, what does, but I, I definitely agree with you. I, I think as much as they talk about the first part, I, I don't think we're given a lot of lessons in what does this product actually look like? And it's great that 10 people are going to answer that question 10 different ways. But in, in some ways, it's a good thing, right? If Georgia Tech goes from having 75 startups every summer to 30, 300 startups every summer, right? The VC funding increases, the ecosystem expands, you get more founders coming back, even failed founders to mm-hmm. talk to people like us to give us some of that know-how. But I, I definitely agree. That's probably not the way, I don't know, like a Y Combinator approaches yeah, it that's okay. <laughs> to get Stripe and Airbnb and DoorDash. Yeah, because no, even Y Combinator, they don't have a limit for how many they accept. They accept the best ones that they think they should accept. And even the ones they do accept, it's something crazy like 2% and then only 5% of those actually even succeed, let alone become unicorns. It's tough. Okay. It's like going back to something you mentioned a little bit earlier, that part about how you see that at tech... A lot of us are forced to choose our majors earlier than most other students at other colleges. I think one a drawback of that is that going back to something I mentioned was like college students are exposed to certain problems that are faced by other college students, which like influence what kind of startups they build. Mm-hmm. What I do see at other colleges is because they're given more freedom. And I guess it's also because they're liberal arts schools and we're more of like an engineering trade school. But no. Because of that freedom that they have, they explore interesting things that might not be related to what they pursue. Like an example is that one of my friends that goes to Penn, he showed me the startup this like Penn founder created, which is basically a tool to help. This is like one of their products. It's not the whole company, but a tool to map out public transportation, right? To different communities and neighborhoods and see how, seeing how it affects the socioeconomic class of those neighborhoods and communities because public transportation means that you can access a greater area of jobs which influences how much the average like you know income of that community might be because apparently one of the biggest issues when it comes to socioeconomic class is the lack of access to jobs and so this person like he learned about this through like an urban planning class that he just took on a whim because he thought it would be interesting but at tech, like we can't really, aff- not some of us can't afford to take that because we came in with a lot of credits or whatever. We came into college, but some of, minority, though, right? liberty, yeah. some of us that don't have that liberty, we had to take just the major specific classes, which gives us like less leeway to explore. Yeah. I think one thing that, that having a startup demands is certainly a certain level of authenticity. 
right? You're pursuing your, you know, true vision for how you want the world to be. And part of the ways to do that is to just explore whatever wacky sort of unrelated ideas are bouncing around in your head. So certainly I think uh, a breadth of experience lets people focus on that a little more. But one of the reasons that it's just great to have this conversation is obviously we come from the same school. So it's easy for us to tackle that problem together. Yeah. And so the the last question I always ask in these interviews, and we've talked about it, but I'm interested to hear your answer is, what excites you the most about the future? That's a great question. It's something I always think about. Not necessarily about what excites me, but what's great about the future. I think what excites me particularly about the future going forward is... We are currently in this thing called the information age, right? Where we have like this mass access information. And, but I think now it's a problem and an issue that we have access too much to too much information. A lot of us suffer from information overload, which makes us more distracted. It makes us, it makes us make a lot of decisions that we probably wouldn't have made or wouldn't have to make if we didn't have this much access to information. And so I guess like what excites me of the future is seeing how that information is spread out and allocated into the hands of people that didn't have access to it before. Something that I have always thought about is like in every single like hierarchical system, there's always somebody at the bottom that will with the current or with the proper tools and proper information can supersede to the top and bring their whole community with them from that bottom. And so I think, you know, going forward, I think we're like, we're leaving this kind of period of time where we where we're like putting a lot of a lot, a lot putting out a lot of stuff, and we're going to this other this new era. I feel where we're like making it more accessible to everyone and anyone. And at that point, it's just that if somebody has a certain amount of drive with the access, they'll be able to do stuff that's nobody's thought about, and that's going to be great. And that's what truly excites me in the future. Yeah, I, I think it's never been easier to build. So yeah, it's yeah yeah for sure. It's great. What a time to be alive and, and also just to be our age, right? It's yeah. the least risky for us. Yeah, no, I, I, because I think it's also the least risky for us because we're, we're also entering like this weird time where there's just so many problems and they're like about to all implode. So there's no harm in just going and trying to solve them because they're going to implode anyways. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, it's certainly great when I look to the left and to the right of me and I see people doing amazing things. And when I talk to great people, like right now, obviously, it makes me more hopeful. So thanks. Thanks so much, Praneet. Obviously, I'm glad we finally got a chance to properly talk, but I really appreciate you making the time. Yeah, no, for sure. Rajat. Next time you're on campus and I'm on campus, we should definitely meet up. You come to Startup Exchange events, right? Yeah, for sure. For sure. I'll be on campus in January. So I'll see you there. I won't be there in the fall. I won't be there in the spring. I'll be there in the fall. <laughs> I'll see you in the fall then. I'll see you in yeah. the fall. All, All right. Thanks so much. Then. Yep. See ya. Thanks for listening to this episode of the podcast. Please like, subscribe, tweet, text, and share so that more people can find the podcast. Take care and we'll see you next time.